Have you ever, have you ever met anyone who just embodies God's love? Like the way that they've encountered you or you've been encountered by them or even the way that you've seen them kind of live and act in the world where it's just, it's just unavoidable that eventually God's love is, is going to meet people through them. Have you ever met someone who just embodies God's love like that? Um, I have, and I want to introduce you to them. Their names are um, Juana and Ramon Prenza. Some of you know who they are because they are the ones who uh, run the school and the orphanage down in the Dominican Republic that we as a church um, used to do those trips a few years ago. Uh, before that, though, those, those trips, they were kind of service trips. They kind of existed with, like a, with a few churches in the area. The first time I went on a trip, it was about 25 years ago now. Um, it was a different world back then as far as like, what they were doing. Um, but like, now they run a school and an orphanage. And the school, I mean, I don't know the numbers, but the school probably, uh, I, they probably have over 200 students in the school. Um, and the orphanage, they probably have at least 25 kids who are a part of that thing. Um, when I went there about 25 years ago, and I first met Juana and Ramon, um, it was a much different operation. It was a much smaller operation. Um, these were two people who are Jesus followers who just heard the call in their lives to do something uh, for the town that they lived in. It was a little town called Monte Plata, right in the middle of the Dominican Republic. It's, you know, typical poverty and that sort of thing. Um, and what they saw in their town were kids everywhere who just weren't getting the education that they needed from the school, from the public school. It just wasn't there, or they were kicked out of the public school, um, or they didn't have a place to live. Like, they didn't have the conditions. And so they said to themselves, following God's call, we're going to do something about this. Um, they partnered with a bunch of churches up here in the United States, and we went down there um, a number of times for these kind of service projects. And um, when I got to know them and see what they did and how they did it, these were two people who just simply, you couldn't meet them and not be encountered by God's love. Um, not only the way that they were, just as far as just gracious and kind, and they remembered you, and they wanted to welcome you in. Um, and not just the way that Juana could kill a chicken and fry it. And it would, I mean, if they ever wanted evidence of God's love, eat her uh, fried chicken. I mean, you know, in the morning, the chicken was waking you up. In the, e in the evening, you're doing pretty good. Um, the thing that stuck out for me the most is they had a number of their own children. They had a number of their own kids. And we were talking this week, like, I can't remember which of their kids were actually their kids and which of the kids were, were, were other kids, were orphans who they pulled in. And we were like, David, was he theirs? Or was they, like, Miguel, was he theirs? Or was he someone else? And like, it's because they treated everyone who was within their orbit just like their own children. Um, they just embodied God's love. And so, uh, like they educated these kids and they raised them up from um, sometimes from very young babies um, until they were 18. Like they were in it for the long run. Um, they did the right things to raise them. They did the right things to raise them up. And so in that town, uh, in Monte Plata, they just embodied God's love. 
And that's how, that's how they were known in that town. It was impossible to interact with them and not be confronted face-to-face with the love of God. I say that, and I, I talk about them, because that's our calling, too. That's our calling, too, as a church. That's our calling as individuals, to embody God's love in, in the real world, in our real lives, with our real sweat and tears, um, in real ways to real people. That's our calling. Not all of us can become Juana and Ramon. It's a super high bar to set. But on the other hand, why can't we? Because there actually is nothing that's remarkable about them except for the fact that they decided um, to hear this call from God and to actually act on it and to actually do it. That's the only thing that set them apart is that they decided to hear that call. They were moved enough to go and do it. Um, And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Really, our call to embody God's love. You can do that. I can do that. We can do that together. Um, This fits right in the middle of our series that Paul talked about. It's called Love Where You Live. And really what we're doing throughout this series um, is we're talking about what our mission together is as a church. And really it is to go out into the world and embody God's love to our neighbors, to our friends, to our coworkers, to the people we go to school with. Because we believe that when we can love where we live, when we can love like that, um, God is going to show himself through us to them and bring people to know him. And so that's where we are with this series right now. We started it three weeks ago. And if you remember that very first week, um, we really talked about what our role is, what our responsibility is. And oversimplifying it, it's to bring God to people and to bring people to God. And that's an oversimplification of it, but that's really what it is. And so when we go about our work days, our school days, just our life out there, that's what we're about. Church, faith, all of this is not about this. It's about that out there. Our job to bring people to God and God to people. As simple as that. Two weeks ago, we talked about how um, part of this role is to invest in people who are outside of the faith. Invest in people who are outside of this community. Um, Oftentimes, that's going to look like investing in people who are difficult to love, who are hard to love. I talked about it as um, people who are disadvantageous for us to love either. Those are the people who we're called to invest in. And we're called to invest in them with the, with the view, with the goal of inviting them in. Um, not just inviting them into this church. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong about that, although that's a good idea too. But um, inviting them into a relationship with Jesus where they're following Jesus with their lives. And we want to do that because we believe that following Jesus is actually the thing that every human being is made for. And so when you invite them into that, you are actually inviting them into the very best thing you could possibly invite them into. And so the call is to invest in outsiders and invite them in. Invite them into a relationship with Jesus. And then last week, Paul, we had Paul preach, and he talked about the the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, And he talked about, just in as simple terms as possible, there is someone on your path, there is someone in your way who you are called to love, and all you are called to do is to get down and do it. Um, you're not called to write their entire story. You're not called to know the entire story. But who knows what that one act of service, what that one act of love can mean in a person's life. Um, God is the one who writes that story. And so what I want to do this morning is I really want to jump off of what Paul had to say last week and kind of add to it. Um, 
in the middle of his message last week, he talked about how the Good Samaritan is kind of like the fundamentals of faith. It's a fundamental. Um, it's a routine play, he said. And in sports terms, right, like a layup is a routine play. If you play basketball, you have practiced a layup thousands, tens of thousands of times in your life. If you're a golfer, you have done, you know, the one-foot putt thousands, tens of thousands of times. If you don't do sports, um, it's like your times tables, right? Like, the reason you know five plus five is because you've done it thousands of times as a kid, right? Paul talked about this as, like, the Good Samaritan as a fundamental of our faith, and he's absolutely right. The one thing he didn't say, and he left this for me to say, is this is a fundamental of our faith that we fundamentally don't do very well, right? Um, it is like we uh, line up for the one-foot putt. We get it all, you, this is how you play golf. Um, <laughs> you get it all kind of lined up, right? My dad, there's a V somewhere, I don't know. Um, and then what we do with this fundamental is we see the putt, and then we turn around and we whack the ball the other direction, right? This is the layup that we intentionally clank off the bottom of the backboard and hits us in the face and hurts us, right? This is the, what's five plus five? 84, no problem, let's keep going, right? This is the fundamental of faith um, that we just, we just don't, we just do very well. Um, if you remember how the parable ends, and I, I'm going to kind of get into it again, but it ends by Jesus saying, just go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. And what we do with it is we go and do the opposite. Or we go the opposite direction. Or we go and we do unlikewise. Um, I want us to go and do likewise. And so this morning, what I want to focus on is um, we're really going to jump off of what Paul said last week. We're going to look at the same parable again, but just ask the question how? I want to continue Paul's train of thought and say, how do we do this? How do we put legs on this so we can do this in practical terms? How do we go and do likewise? And if you're thinking to yourself, I've been coming to Park Church for about six months now, and I've heard this, par this parable preached on three or four times now. I'm getting tired of it. I want to know how well you're doing in actually going and doing likewise, right? This is one of those things we could never stop um, hearing and thinking about. So, I want to open, open up with this story. This is um, it's from Luke 10. Jesus is talking with a religious leader of the time. Um, Jesus was Jewish, they're Jewish, everyone's Jewish. He's talking with an expert in the Jewish law. And this guy asks him, um, how do I get eternal life? And when the man asks Jesus the question, he is not asking, how do I go to heaven when I die? Okay, That's not the question that Jesus ever answers. That's not the question he's asking. What the man is asking is, how do I get and live the life that God means for me to live now? How do I get and live the life that is um, the quality of life that almost just transcends our normal life? How do, I, how do I live what God made for me to live? And so Jesus says to him, you know the answer. You're an expert in this stuff. What does the law say? And the guy says, um, well, love God with all your heart, mind, strength, soul, blah, blah, blah. Um, ooh, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? That's what he says. And Jesus says, right, you've, you've nailed it. And the guy isn't super happy with that answer, and so he asks the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus responds, not with a theological treatise, not with a philosophical point, but he responds with once upon a time. He responds with a story 
A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Um, when Jesus tells a story like this, these are called parables. And what Jesus usually means to do with his parables is explode your mind. For us, when we read them, they don't explode our minds because we're not in that world as much. But for this um, religious expert who he was talking to, this would have exploded his mind. What Jesus wants to do with these parables is he wants to shake things up. He wants to shake um, the mind up. He wants to shake the heart up. He wants to challenge the assumptions. He wants to challenge the worldview. He wants to change people's minds, um, shake their hearts, shake their brains, so that they actually act differently, live differently. Um, and, and what he wants to do is challenge people's assumptions about who God is, about what God is like, about what God values, um, about what God finds important, about, about what God wants us to do in the world. And so usually as part of these parables, he paints God, he paints himself into these parables as well. Um, and so we're going to look for that. We're going to look at how this challenges us and changes us, because that's what he does in this parable. And so here's how this uh, starts. He says, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest, who was another religious expert, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, who was a kind of priest's assistant, another religious guy, when he came to that place in Psalm, he passed by on the other side too. So we have the, the guy um, stripped, beaten, left for dead, lost, hopeless, wounded, bleeding, right here, laying in a ditch on the side of the road. And you have these two religious guys over here who are just walking by. They see him, they don't stop, they see him, and they keep going. They keep going. They don't have time for this guy. They don't have time for what this guy requires. They don't have time, um, they don't want to get their hands dirty with this. They don't want to be bothered by this. Now, to us, that's one thing, right? We kind of get what Jesus is saying here. To these guys, you know what they're thinking? They're thinking, he's insulting me right now. Because I'm a religious guy, this is a religious guy. He's insulting me right now. What Jesus is saying, with just, just by putting these two characters in the story like this, is he's saying the way you guys are doing faith, the religion that you guys have, um, that God instituted and, and, and you guys perverted, it has failed. It has failed to do the thing it meant to do, which, which, was, which was take care of the guy on the side of the road. It has failed to do that, and so it is time for something new. It is time for something new. This was a huge criticism um, of their way of doing faith. So, uh, he continues. He says, but a Samaritan, and a Samaritan was kind of a cousin, a distant cousin, kind of a redhead stepchild of the Jewish people. They were kind of enemies. The Jewish people really looked down on Samaritans. This was not a good relationship at all. Um, when a Samaritan was traveling, while, while traveling came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, which is their kind of money, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, and when I come back, I will I will repay you whatever more you spend. And so here's the scene, right? We have a Samaritan riding on a donkey. 
This is a donkey. His name is Marco. <laughs> um, you have a Samaritan. He is riding on a donkey. I don't know how you ride on a donkey. This is weird. Okay, I'm going to stop that. Um, you have him riding on a donkey, right? And he rides up, and he sees the man in need. And he stops because he's moved with pity. Um, pity is the word for compassion. It's the word for love that just boils up and tears, tears up your insides. It's that word. He stops because he is moved with pity, moved with compassion. He's moved with love for this man. This is an enemy of God's people that was doing the thing that God's people were supposed to be doing. He's moved. He stops. He sees him, and he kind of goes over to him on the donkey, right? You like that? <laughs> and what does he do? He, he takes out a box of Band-Aids and some Advil and Neosporin and throws it on him and says, I'm going to keep going. That's not what he does, right? He goes over to him. He climbs, he climbs down off of the donkey. He climbs down, and he gets, he gets onto his hands and his knees, well, really his knees, um, he gets onto his knees, and he rolls his sleeves up. He takes oil and wine out, which was the best they could do to like heal someone at that time. He pours it on there. He gets his hands right, right up in there, like right up in the wounds. He 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 rubs it on to try to clean it. He takes care of the man. He bandages him up the best that he knows how with the stuff that he has, and he 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 picks the man. Back up, he drags him over, he puts him, he puts him on top of his donkey, and then he walks the donkey all the way back into town. And he rents a room at the inn, and he takes care of him, he, he does what he can, and he says to the innkeeper, whatever it's going to cost to get this guy nursed back to health, I'm going to pay it, because I'm, uh, I'm in it with this guy for the long run. And that's what he does. The mental picture that this story painted in the lives of these religious people who had their minds already set and made up about who God was and who God was for, um, this would have shaken them to the core. This would have shaken their foundations. Why? Because the religious people who were supposed to do the good things, they were the ones who Jesus was really judging and saying, no, I don't think so. And it was an outsider a Samaritan. It was someone from somewhere else who had to come and clean up the mess, who had to come and fix and serve and love. And do you know why Jesus told this story in the way that he did? It's because he wanted them to see that he is the good Samaritan who was coming not only for them and for their brokenness, but for us and for our brokenness. And he wanted he wanted us to see that um, the Good Samaritan is a story. It's an illustration of what God was currently doing for the world through the birth and the life and the teaching and the miracles and the healing and the suffering and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Because if you think about it, what happens in the life of Jesus is he is sitting up in heaven. He's comfortable. He climbs down out of heaven and he gets right down to our level on his knees to serve us, to get his hands dirty, to take on our, our infirmities, to take on our sicknesses, to bear our iniquities, it says in Scripture. 
to take on all of the mess, all of the filth, all of the dirt, all of the brokenness of our humanity so that he could pick us up, put us on his back, and carry us to a place where we could be healed, where we could find new life, where we could be safe. He does that through the cross, but he does that for us um, ongoing. This story is an illustration of what, of what God's love is. It's like an embodiment of God's love. It's the story of God's love. The Good Samaritan um, puts flesh and blood in that story to the truth of God's love. And do you know how Jesus ended it? He said, go and do likewise. Now it's your turn. Now it's your turn to embody this love out there in the world, to put flesh and blood, skin and bones, sweat and tears to the truth of how much God loves the people who are in our way, who are in need also. Just as it did um, for Juana and Ramon. Just like that. And so what I want to do is um, I want to actually teach you a concept uh, that I'll tell you about. Um, And I'm not sure why I'm teaching this. Actually, no, I am sure why I'm teaching this concept. I want to teach you a concept um, that might help you understand it better, that might help you kind of imagine yourself in it. Um, And it's it's called this right here. It's called incarnational mission. And this is kind of a big topic in theological circles and mission circles, that sort of thing. To be honest, the words, I don't really care about. They don't matter. We're not going to talk about it as incarnational mission all the time or anything like that. Um, One of the reasons it's helpful for you to know is because if you're doing the Love Where You Live book with us over the course of this community group semester, um, the point of this week, at the end of the chapter, there's like a the point. The point is we get to live out the incarnational mission of Jesus in our neighborhood. And I asked some people uh, what that means. I asked my wife what that means. And she's like super smart and she's around me in theology all the time. So she like kind of figured it out. But I realized if she doesn't quite know what it means, a lot of people don't know what it means, right? So I'm going to teach you a little bit about what incarnational mission actually means. And the headline is it means embodying God's love in the world, right? But here it kind of goes. And I'll kind of walk you through it. Um, Mission, this is a word that I've used a few times already. This is a word that we use all the time. And I want to just make one thing clear about mission. When we talk about mission, we're not first talking about going to some native civilization over, over there somewhere, right, or down there somewhere. Um, that is part of mission. That is missionary work. But when we talk about mission here at Park Church, our mission field is Monmouth County. Our mission is to bring the good news of who Jesus is, of what Jesus means, the gospel, to the people in this county um, who don't know it, right? Inviting them into that relationship. That's, that's what we talk about when we talk about our mission. That's why we gather together as a church. That's the only reason our church exists, is to get on with that mission, right? A church without a mission is not a church. It's a country club. That's not what we are. We're a mission, okay? So that's mission. But then we had this word incarnational. And the fun thing about that is it's not a real word, um, So when you type it into a computer, the little squiggly line comes up underneath it, right? Um, The word incarnation is a real word. And we hear that at Christmas time all the time, right? Um, When God was born as a human being in the the stable there at Bethlehem, um, that is God being incarnated. The word uh, incarnate, in, means in. And... (laughs) And... um, Carnation, this is, this is um, from the word carnal, meaning flesh. Um, it's like, you know, um, carne asada, uh, 
chili con carne, right? It means meat. It means steak. Um, this is flesh. So in, incarnation means in flesh. Um, at, at, at Christmas time, we celebrate God in flesh, God incarnate. Jesus is God incarnate. In the Gospel of John, um, John talks about it just like that. He says, the word, God, became flesh and dwelt among us. He lived among us. Um, and the way that he kind of puts it in like a popular translation is the word became flesh and he moved into the neighborhood. He moved into the neighborhood. He moved in among us. And that's, that's kind of what um, incarnational mission kind of means. And so incarnation all is not to reincarnate God. We don't do that. That's only something that God does. That happened once in Jesus. Um, but it's to, it's to do mission based on this model, based on the model of the incarnation. Ow. And so we'll talk about what the incarnation, like if you think about it, what actually happened, what actually happened in the incarnation? If you think about it, it goes like this. And this is an oversimplification all of all of this. God is sitting up there in heaven, right? That's where God lives. Heaven is the place where everything goes God's way. It's exactly the way God wants it. That's why when Jesus taught us to pray, he said, um, your will on earth as it is in heaven, right? Heaven is the place where God gets what he wants, basically. God is comfortable there. God is um, secure there. God does not suffer in heaven, right? God is sitting up there in heaven. And what he does is he sees the world in need. He sees us beaten up, broken down. He hears our cries. He has a history of doing that. Um, He sees us. And he stops because he is so moved with compassion. Remember, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. It was love, pity, compassion that compelled God to become incarnate. God so loved the world that he climbed down out of heaven and became a human being like Jesus, took on the same flesh that we have, and got down on his knees and served us and bore our illnesses, and bore our sin, and bore everything about us, our brokenness, our humanity. He took all of that upon himself, and he lived with us. He lived with us for 30 plus years. Think about that for a second. Um, He could have came down and zapped us. He could have came down and thrown a metaphorical box of Band-Aids and Neosporin at us and said, get to it, guys. But he came and he lived with us for 30 plus years. He grew and was and was and and was suffered and suffered and got sick, right? He had his heart broken, again and again and again. He lived with us. That's what um, incarnation is. That's what it. That's what it is. And so, um, he did that to heal us from within us, not from without us. To redeem us, to restore us, to give us new life. And so when we put all of these pieces together, um, incarnational mission, um, here's what it looks like. I kind of I have boiled it down to four um, movements for you so that we can kind of have handles on this and kind of remember this um, and we can kind of see where we can grab on and kind of join in God on this mission. Um, and the first is incarnational mission means that you are moved to act with compassion. You're moved to act. This is what the Samaritan does, right? 
He doesn't keep going, but he's moved to action. This is what God fundamentally does in um, sending Jesus into the world. This is what Jesus did again and again and again. One of my favorite little tidbits from the Gospels is when Jesus sees um, crowds of people who are lost, who are, who are hungry, who are hurting. Um, it's like that compassion wells up within him. He says, because it feels like they're like sheep without a shepherd. And he has that feeling, and he is compelled to action, and he moves, he moves to action. It's not um, see the need, feel the compassion, know the right thing to do, know what the Bible says the right thing to do is, and then do nothing. It's go and do. And I know this is kind of like, duh, right? But this is where we get stuck more often than not. Step one, part one, we just can't get past this. We know what love requires of us, and we just don't do it. We have all the reasons not to, all the fears, um, all the everything, but going and doing means going and doing. And I know I hit this hard so far this year. The first series of the year was called The Only Thing That Counts. And it was about how the only thing that counts is faith working through love. We can have all the faith in the world, all the God and me stuff. If it doesn't translate from the vertical into the horizontal, it means nothing. We can have the faith to move mountains. We can all have love for one another. It means nothing. Um, another part of Jesus' teaching, it's an amazing part. At the very end of his biggest block, his most famous block of teaching, um, he ends it by saying, anyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them is like someone who has built their house on the rock. And storms come, floods come, winds and surge, and the house stands because it's built on the rock. Anyone who hears these things and doesn't act on them, it's like someone's built their house on the sand. The storms, the wind, the flood comes, and the house gets swept away. Um, if we are not hearing his words and going and doing likewise, our house will be swept away. The house of your faith, the house of our church, will be swept away. We want to build this house on the rock instead. The reason we're doing this parable again and again and again um, is because I know that we're not doing it well enough. And I know that in part because I could just tell, but in part because I'm the one up here yelling about it a whole bunch, and I'm not doing it well enough. Because I forget. I go and do unlikewise. I go and do the opposite all the time. And so we're going to keep hammering we're going to kind of keep hammering on this um, again and again and again. And maybe we're not willing to actually go and do, though, because we can't do what uh, the next one is. And it's going from comfort to uncomfort. Um, I wanted to name this one Get Off Your... And it's funny because a donkey is also called that. <laughs> right? I didn't feel like I had the authority to make that connection of that joke, though. So I'm just going to put it in your head, but um, listen, we, we can stay. We can stay up here on our donkeys. We can sit on our donkeys all we want, because guess what? We live in Monmouth County. We have multiple sources of tacos, of, um, of gasoline, of clean water, of energy, of food. We have more money than we know what to do with. It is entirely possible for, every, for each and every one of us to go through life sitting on our donkeys um, and doing nothing. That's, that's the temptation that we are just threatened with in this area. Um, the call of Jesus, though, 
It's to get off your donkey, right? It's to get off and go. This is what Jesus did in the biggest and most um, realistic sense. He got off his donkey and came to save us. Incarnational mission means intentionally, listen, leaving our comfort zones. It means stepping out of our comfort zones and stepping into a place where we're not so comfortable. Putting aside our own safety, our own abundance, our own security, our own preferences in order to enter into someone else's uncomfortable zone. And this stands in stark contrast to a kind of mission, a kind of outreach, a kind of, frankly, approach to the world and love that keeps people at a safe distance or that says, for you to be reached, you need to come up to me, right? Or um, for you to be welcomed here, you need to look like me, act like me, think like me, talk like me, believe like me. It's, ooh, I'm not going down there. That's not this. It's moving from comfort to uncomfort. And the third, and it goes just along with it, it is about getting your hands dirty, rolling up your sleeves um, and, getting, and getting in there. I mean, think about that image again, right? He pours the oil and the wine on him. He cleans it. He gets his hands dirty. He gets his hands in there. He touches the wounds. And I wonder what it would look like for you if you were more willing to touch the wounds in people's lives. I mean, we all have someone we know who is going through a horrible time in their marriage. What would it look like for you not to be like, oh, I'm not going there, but to actually get in there and touch those wounds? We all know someone who has had their hopes crushed, had their dreams dashed, and how disappointing that is. What would it look like for you to get in there and actually touch, touch those wounds? We all know what it's like to have the pain of a disappointing relationship or the pain um, of your children not, not um, being who you thought they were going to be. Like, we all know that. What would it look like for you to get in there and touch those wounds? When you actually stop and get to know people, when you actually stop and get to hear about people's lives, you can see how broken people are, how much lostness there, are, there is in the world, how much woundedness there actually is. Um, to be, you know, half dead laying in a ditch doesn't mean you're physically actually broken and beaten up and, and, and you have everything taken from you. You could be the most successful person in your company and be the guy who is beaten up in your ditch, in the ditch, right? Um, you could be the prettiest girl in high school. You could be the most popular guy and be the person who is beaten up and left for dead. Your Instagram profile, your Facebook stuff, your family can look amazing. It can look amazing, but really, you could be the one who is beaten up on the side of the road. I mean, when you actually interact with people on this level, you come to see it again and again and again. And incarnational mission means being willing to get in there and touch those wounds to get your hands dirty. And then the last one is just being in it with them. And it should mean um, being in it with them for the long run. There's kind of two ways of approaching mission. One is to stand on the sidelines and yell into people, hey, do this, do that, believe this, believe that, right? Come to me, be like me. It's a whole other thing, though, to get into the game with them. As Paul said last week, to take them by the hand and walk them around. 
Incarnational mission takes the risk of actually getting into the game with people, of coming alongside people um, and walking through life with them. This is what the Samaritan does. He picks up this man and this man's burden, and he puts it on his own animal, and he pays the full cost of getting him healed. Incarnational mission is not a mission trip. It's not a mission vacation. It's a mission life. It's moving into the neighborhood, being with, in it with people, sometimes for the long run. And this is, um, this is exactly what Juana and Ramon did. This is what they did, because they would, they would take kids who were just little children and raise them up until they were 18, and those kids would still hang around because they were, they were part of the family. You couldn't tell who was, who was who in those families. I mean, to go to like, real-life examples of this, um, Juana and Ramon are a good one to think about. They saw the need, were moved with compassion, and they acted on it. Um, when we first used to go down there, we used to actually sleep in their home. And so the week that we went down there, they would leave their home so that we could live there. Actually, the guys slept in the chicken coop, um, and the girls slept in the room, or in the house. Um, but like, could you imagine that, moving out of your house every time someone wanted to come down and help you? They were used to going from comfort to uncomfort. Of course they got their hands dirty. Anytime you're working with orphans, broken families, and poverty, there's going to be dirt everywhere. They were in it for the long run, like I said. And I know we're not all called to be Juana and Ramon, but, but, but maybe you are. Maybe you are. And if not, um, maybe you could adopt a child. That's doing this in a, in a, in a wild way, right? Maybe you could orphan orphan. Maybe you could foster. That was the wrong thing. Um, maybe you could foster a child, right? Just take in the person who needs it. Um, this can look like all sorts of things. I want to read a little section of a story um, of what this really looks like, what this can look like um, at a level not just of the individual, but as like a church doing something together. And this is a, this is a story um, of a of a guy and his wife and their community group, basically. They moved into this town. They had this neighbor who was just, you know, that crazy neighbor who, like, the, you know, the grass is all over the place and the garbage is everywhere, and it's just, it's just disgusting. They had tried and tried. Um, at one point, his wife, Jane, just, just um, took her garbage cans, threw them onto her lawn, and said, like, I give up. I can't do this anymore, and, and kind of walked away. Um, anyway, shortly after Jane gave up, Nikki, which was her name, showed up at the front door. She was in tears. A taxi had just dropped her off because her van had broken down and needed to be towed for, to a repair shop. This was the first time Jane ever had a chance to have a close face-to-face -face conversation with Nikki. Nikki said, I'm so sorry to bother you, but you've always been so friendly. <laughs> I didn't know where to go, and I need some help. What followed was a three-hour conversation in which Nikki poured her heart out to Jane. Jane began to feel that empathy for Nikki. Jane had given up on Nikki, but God had moved her toward us. He loved her more than we ever could. We had perceived Nikki as a project, but it's not our job to change people. That's God's job. He sends us to love people so that they can come to know the Father's love through us. That's what Jesus uh, did with us. That's what he wants to do through us. Whatever he has done to you, now he wants to do through you. So together, um, and he means like as a group of people from their church, together we started loving her like a family. 
Nikki came to our door again. She was in terrible condition, needed to go to the hospital. However, the van didn't work still. Um, and she didn't want anyone else in the neighborhood to know that she was going through this. She was isolated, hiding, shamed, and broken, but she was not alone. God had put her there because he loved her, and so he was present for her through us. We were Jesus' body in Nikki's life, to love her toward Jesus. Um, she had grown to trust us, though she didn't always respond well. Um, we didn't give up because that's not what family does, and Jesus doesn't give up on us either. He's not wearied by our brokenness. He's not repelled by our insecurities or our fears, which lead us to run away in isolation. He is present. He is here. He is not leaving because he loves us like a family. That's how we could love Nikki. So Jane took her to the hospital, um, you know, did all that stuff, cared for her there, visited her all the time. Um, they paid for their van to get fixed so Nikki could get around again. And this is, this is, this is, this is where I want to go. He says, it was costly. It felt intrusive. We didn't always feel up to it. It even required some hard conversations with our immediate family because we started including her in our family gatherings and our family celebrations. Eventually, after numerous conversations, Nikki came to believe that God really loved her. I'll never forget the day when she came over to tell Jane that she, that she had surrendered her life to Jesus and experienced his grace to forgive her of her sins for the first time. Nikki came to know the Father's love through Jesus, expressed both on the cross and through his body, the church, living next door to her and loving her like family. We have the opportunity to embody God's love like that. I mean, it's one of the reasons why we are referred to in uh, the New Testament as the body of Christ. It's a bit of an exaggeration to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, you might be, we might be, the only Jesus that that person ever sees. We might be, you might be, the Jesus that that person needs to see. But it's not going to happen unless we're willing um, to do something like this, to do something about it. And so what I want to challenge you to is just very simple, and it's getting super late. So we're going to skip right through the next song and go right into communion. Um, what I want to challenge you to is to pick one of these things. Think about the person who's on your heart, who's in your head, and take a step this week just to do it. You have the reasons not to. Forget about those reasons. Ask God for help to do it. And take a step and actually do it. Um, I want you to come back next week to hear about how we can kind of do a little bit of this on March 16th, right? Come back next week and hear about this. But also, come back next week and hear about something that I'm going to talk about that if we don't do this, we don't, we don't get any of this right, all right? Um, so come back next week, take a step, and try it. Because you could be someone, you can be someone who, um, who people encounter God's love through every day. Let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, the way that you love us, for the way that you have come to us. You have climbed out of heaven and come to us to be God with us. Um, we thank you, Jesus, that you have uh, touched our wounds, that you have taken care of us, that you have bandaged us up at great cost to yourself, that you have come um, in, in a way that forever changes us. You have borne our burdens. You have carried them. 
And Lord, we pray that we would be able to take this go and do likewise serious. To actually receive it, to actually hear it, to actually do something about it. To get off our donkeys and go out there um, and love where we live. We know we're called to that. We know that you give us the strength to do that. And so we ask you for that now. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.